Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. We are going to be in Numbers 9 tonight. I was going to shoot for two chapters again, but then you think, you know, I don't want to do it just because I've got some rule in my head. And I, every time I tried to get on to chapter 10, I kept having one more thing I wanted to get back to in chapter 9. Like there's one more, okay, I want to look up that word and see that word too. And I just was so blessed by it. For context tonight, I, it is very important because chapter 9 is the end of a section. And I want to go back through one more time because these are all of the things that God asked the people of Israel to do before their, what was going to be a 14-day journey to get to the promised land. And there is a straight route from Sinai to the promised land, but they do not take the straight route. And if you look in any sort of like Bible map where they kind of draw out the route through the wilderness, it looks like one of those family circus routes where the kid just meanders through the neighborhood. They don't take a straight line to get there. And part of that is because... Um, of some of the things that happen that God wants them to be prepared for the Holy Land and prepared for the Promised Land. But as they start, he anoints that starting, and we're going to see that at the end of chapter 9, because they do everything right to get started, except for they worship the golden calf. And remember that from like a year ago now, right? They've been at the base of Mount Sinai after that incident, getting the law. God's telling them everything he wants them to do, including don't worship golden calves. So we've already had a delay because of that. And they're going to have more delays coming up because of, some, because of faithlessness that we'll see when they come to the Holy Land. Um, but for now, they're doing a lot of the right things. Spiritually speaking, if we use all these things for reproof and for teaching, there are spiritual elements that can be drawn from these chapters about what God asks his people to do and what God does to prepare his people for the wilderness. So in chapter 1, God counted his people and he named his people. He got organized. Um, in chapter, or, I'm sorry, in chapter two, he kind of organizes them into where they're going to camp and how they're going to do that. Chapter three and four, he gives his servants work to do, and he asks them to do that work. And some of that work was menial work, right? We just talked to somebody today who had a, who was like doing a job and he was training in as a, a machinist. And part of what the company is asking him to do is go learn every machine in their institution. And so he'll be at each machine for like two weeks. And then he says, okay, I'm kind of done with this. I'm ready for the next machine. But he's dreading when they're going to put him on a machine and leave him there for 20 years. You know, so he's kind of thinking, is this really my thing right now? Because this is really kind of menial work where he has to just operate this machine day in and day out. Numbers five, God commands them to clean up the camp and get rid of the defilement, the sickness, the jealousy. Remember that? And then in six, God accepts the Nazarite vow. So there's people that might stand out with special commitments to the Lord. And then he blesses them through the priests. And then in number seven, God makes, he, he records everything that's happening. He makes a record of all the gifts that people give. Um, and then he claims the Levites in numbers eight. And then in this chapter, God's going to accommodate for special situations. And then he's going to start leading his people. Spiritually speaking, 
when we're lost in the wilderness or when we're looking for how to start moving for the kingdom, one of the things we can do is go back through chapters one through eight of Numbers and say, okay, if God's doing that in my life, what does that look like and how am I doing that? Have I organized my life? Have I done these things? So it's kind of an interesting kind of piece. And that context helps us understand what seems otherwise like a really weird kind of moment at the beginning of chapter nine. So I'll just dig in here and for some reason he goes back to this Passover thing. And we've already done Passover. There's been a whole description of Passover. Um, but we come back to this Passover topic and, and then we'll, we'll try to get some understanding of this via the context of where it's at in the book. Um, so he just got done claiming the Levites as his own workforce that's going to serve the priesthood. And then in verse 1 of chapter 9 it says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the first month of the second year after they'd come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Let the children of Israel keep the Passover at its appointed time. On the 14th day of this month, at twilight, you shall keep it at its appointed time. According to all its rites and ceremonies, you shall keep it. So Moses told the children of Israel that they should keep the Passover. And they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month, at twilight, in the wilderness of Sinai, according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. So the children of Israel did it. And so again, we're starting off on the right fit. The Lord commands them to do something, they do it. This is the book of Numbers, so we're going to do some numbers. And this and chapter 9 starts off with numbers. It says the first month of the second year. So Numbers 1, if you flip all the way back to Numbers 1, this book started on the first day of this month. And then in chapter 10, it goes to the 20th day of this month. So we have, just to get a sense of timeline, and, and Numbers gives us these marks, um, we are in. We are still in this piece. The book begins on the first day of the month, and this exception passage that we're going to get to happens six days before they leave, and they leave in chapter 10 on the 20th day of the month. So we are on day 14 right now, and that's going to be kind of relevant because this is out of order. And chronologically, and I've talked about this before, Numbers is not in chronological order. It bounces around a little bit. The order that's here is an order of spiritual importance in how they get organized and how they get ready to go. So technically speaking, then, the instructions we're going to get in the next few verses are being given at the same time that they're getting the feasts as their instructions for how to do things at the beginning of Leviticus and at the end where they, the, the sacrifices at the beginning of Leviticus and the feasts at the end of Leviticus. We're at the exact same chronological time only the instructions for the feasts are over here in the book of Leviticus, and this exception to the Passover is over here in the book of Numbers. So we have a sense that Moses is organizing these writings, even though he's hearing from the Lord day by day in the tabernacle, he's writing them down and putting them in different places for different reasons. We should know those reasons if we want to understand the book of Numbers. Why is this passage here and not back in Leviticus? Does that make sense? Okay. One reason is, Numbers is about moving. It's about getting going in the wilderness. Before we get moving, we have to deal with our reservations and our questions. And a lot of us have questions in the faith. It's, it, God created this, this amazing faith for us to follow, and we should have questions as we get into it. Because if you're going to commit your life to something, you should sort out your questions. So we're going to get that, and that's one kind of passage on this. And this memorial feast that's happening the book of Exodus is chronological from beginning to end. So we have a historical account that's chronological. 
numbers is not chronological, so we have a different literary form that's going on. The night of Passover in Exodus 12, 14 um, is a memorial feast that lasts for seven days from day 14 of the month to day 21 of the month. So they should be finishing Passover in the second year right when they're about to take off, right? So they leave Egypt and they're going to leave Sinai on the same day of the year. So there's kind of a symmetry here and we should recognize that. We should know that context. Um, and we should know that that organization that's happening is going to happen before Passover because at Passover they're supposed to be at home with their families. So think of all the work they've had to do to take the census back in Numbers um, 1 to organize the camps in Numbers 2. These are massive initiatives that are going on to take the names of the gifts and record those. All that's happening before Passover. And then the work that they're going to do is take a one-week vacation right before they pack up and move this country of two million people. And that's kind of a, an interesting piece. And all that in you know verse 1 is that we see that that's where we sit chronologically and what's going on around them while this happens. So on the first day of the month, you shall set up the tabernacle of the tent of meeting is in Exodus 40, verse 2. So on day one, they set up that tabernacle. That's back when you taught. And then here we are, only 14 days have passed when we have this situation. So the point being is, this passage, though the topic is Passover, it's not about Passover. We've talked about Passover, and I'm not going to get into all of what Passover symbolizes and everything, because I don't think that's what this is about. What this is about comes up in verse 6. And this is about getting unstuck and ready to move on behalf of God. So sometimes these questions we have get in the way of us doing things for the kingdom. Verse 6. Now there were certain men who were defiled by a human corpse so that they could not keep the Passover on that day. And they came before Moses and Aaron that day. And those men said to him, we became defiled by a human corpse. Why are we kept from presenting the offering of the Lord at its appointed time among the children of Israel? So again, back in Leviticus 9, verse 1, it came to pass in the eighth day that Moses called Aaron and his sons to the elders of Israel. They do the sacrifices. And remember Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's two kids, start bringing in some, they get caught smoking. <laughs> and they're not supposed to be doing, you know, defiled smoking in front of the tabernacle, but they're adding something to the worship. And then they are taken out by God himself. They're killed right there. Now we have two dead bodies back in Leviticus 9 on the floor of the tabernacle. Then in Leviticus verse chapter 10, verse 4, Moses called Mishael and Elzapan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, come near and carry your brethren from before the sanctuary out of the camp. Some people believe, believe these, remember, I did all that work to show how many days are apart. The only dead people that we know of in Israel within this two-week period of time are Nadab and Abihu. And here are these two guys that had to carry those bodies away they became defiled at that point. So the word, um, it says, why are we being kept from presenting the offering? These are people that wanted to give worship to the Lord, but they couldn't. They were restricted from doing it because of this rule of if you're touching dead bodies, you can't be giving this gift to the Lord. You're supposed to be apart from that. So they're being restrained is what the kept from means, like they're being held back from doing it. Um, and I just think this is a case where people have a heart to serve the Lord, but there's something in their life where they can't do it. There's a rule that gets in the way of serving the Lord. 
And this is kind of one of those discussions where legalism can be a problem in our life, right? So does the question then is, does this death and touching of these bodies, even though they were told to do it, it wasn't like they willfully broke the law or went and played with dead bodies for fun or anything like that. They were told to do it and in service they did it. And now maybe perhaps these are the same people coming to Moses going, and now you're not going to let us worship the Lord. So the heart here isn't a, a shifty legalism where they're trying to avoid the worship of the Lord by using the letter of the law to say, well, you know, here's how we're going to get out of this service to the Lord. These are people that wanted to serve the Lord, but the letter of the law was preventing them. Make sense? Okay. So the question is, does death get victory or does death not get victory? Because in this case, I think that's kind of one of the pieces is that um, these people are have touched something that would make them impure, unclean, and they're asking if, is if that's going to get in the way of them worshiping the God. And I like the idea that the question comes down to this issue of is death going to have the victory or is God going to have the victory? Is life going to have victory? Um, so they desire to serve God. They have a question. They're stuck. It's a legal question. It's a theological question. It's a, it's a letter of the law versus the spirit of the law kind of question. And Passover is part of how they worship during this part of God's progressive revelation. This is how you worship God, is you do the feasts he's asked you to do. And that's changed a little bit in our in the church generation. But at this point in history, this is if you love the Lord, you participate in these activities. So is there anything that gets in the way of worship? And in this case, touching a dead body is one of those things. And then I like Moses' answer. And, and again, this is my weird middle school teacher mentality. Look at his answer. Stand still. This is the same God that killed Nadab and Abihu for doing the wrong thing on the temple steps. And he says, stand still. And I just like that because it's kind of like, you know, we have a question to God, like, can we really not participate in Passover? And Moses just says, stand still and stand right there. And I'm going to stand way, in fact, I'm going to go back into the tabernacle and leave you out here on your own. Um, and I just think that's kind of humorous because these people had to be wondering, are we in trouble? Like, is there going to be a lightning bolt from heaven that will zap us right here? But verse eight, and Moses said to them, stand still that I can hear what the Lord will command concerning you. Like there's a question here because Moses does have a question. And I think even Moses, who hears directly from God, we don't get necessarily a voice from heaven telling us what to do. Even Moses has a question. And the way he deals with this question is he goes straight to God. And we can learn from that too. When we have a question, you don't necessarily go to humans for your answer. You go to the word of God. And we have the word of God written out in a book form, which Moses didn't have. And Moses would probably be jealous of us because we have a, a revealed complete word of God and he did not have that. Um, but we do the same thing when we have a question, we go to God, we go to the word and put your question up to that word and do that study. So Moses says, don't move. I'm going to get out of the way of this lightning bolt that's coming. And he goes for, and he goes for this answer. Um, God answers prayer and he answers prayer usually in one of three ways. He either says yes, he says no, or he says, why don't you just stand still and wait and give me some time to let your heart be sanctified and purified. And that's a tough thing to accept. In fact, when we were talking about the, the, the university thing and, and you know moving forward with ordination and that sort of thing, that's a tough thing to say. Just stand still and wait. Because we as humans always want to be moving. And sometimes that desire to move is our will. And God says, I don't want you to move when you want to move. I want you to move when I want you to move. So yes, no, 
can wait. And in this case, these two guys, or, or, or this, I'm sorry, certain men, we don't know the number of them, are asked to just stand and wait. And that had to be a torturous experience because you're standing outside the tabernacle, shifting your feet in the dirt, waiting for Moses for who knows how long, you know, and just thinking, oh, what's going to happen now? But they're asked to stand still. When I was a kid, if somebody told me, to, teachers told me to stand still all the time or sit still all the time. And it's horrible. It's worse when somebody tells you to do it because, again, you have to take your will and put it to the side and obey. And it's really difficult. It's really difficult when you're a squirrely little fifth grader, too. Now I'm a squirrely adult, and I still have troubles with it. But you pray about it, you mature in it, and you understand that. On theological questions, God's already given the answer. It's in the Word of God. The problem with the answers we already have is we sometimes struggle with those answers. And that's a really tough thing when the Word of God says one thing, and you already know the answer to the question. You just have to submit to that answer. On practical questions like this, God often says, wait, and let me sanctify you. So when, when we have questions about, say, who to marry, what job to take, what job to apply for, and what job not to take, and those kinds of things, those are practical questions. And a lot of times God asks us to wait before he makes a, a revealed answer to those questions happen. So if we're lost in those questions, that's one of the forms of being lost in the wilderness, and we may have to start reading God's word for ourselves. And a great first step in reading God's word is a Bible study where you're progressively going through it every week and you can't stop that train because it just keeps moving. And you commit yourself to that study of the word. And as we mature, sometimes that's not enough either because the more we get of the word, the more we want to get it on our own. So you start with your morning Bible studies, your personal Bible studies, your daily Bible studies, Bible studies with your spouse, Bible studies with your kids or with your parents. And you start kind of consuming the word of God so that God's will is made more known to you. In that sense, we sanctify and prepare and we abide with God and that abiding with God and in God's word, which is what Moses goes in to do. He goes to abide with God for a season, for a time um, to get his answer because Moses didn't know it. The certain men didn't know it. And the answer to this, we see it right in the Bible, is you abide with God. Instead of putting your will to take the next step, you read the word of God and you, you live in that like you're a vine on the vine branch. John uh, chapter 15, verse 1. Uh, Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that he may bear more fruit. That pruning is often that standing still period or the, the taking a step back before you grow forward. You're already clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. That abide thought is all over the Bible. And Steph and I have just, every Bible study we're doing, we just keep coming back to this thought that part of our walk with Christ is to just enjoy fellowship with Christ, to abide in God and to be happy with that. If anyone does not abide in me, he's cast out as a branch and is withered or lost in the wilderness. And they gather them and they throw them into the fire and they're burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. You have a question, you ask, it'll be done for you. And that part of that has to do with abiding. Stand still and wait and let God speak to you. By the way, Steph said that's all the further we need to go tonight. That's just a great, like you can walk away with that thought and integrate that into your life and we can just be done with Bible study. But I told her we had to at least finish the chapter. And um, 
So how do we know what the Bible tells us to do? And how do we understand that? And, 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 and sometimes if we don't understand what the Bible's saying, abiding in God is how we develop understanding. It's how we eventually have God show us things. Verse 9, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, not the people that came up with a question. God's going to give an answer to prayer that's more than what Moses asked. Moses asked about a particular situation for these brothers or brethren. And then God gives an answer in verse 10 and says, speak to the children of Israel. You're, I'm going to have you tell this to the whole nation because this is a good question. If any one of you or your posterity is unclean because of a corpse or is far away on a journey, he may still keep the Lord's Passover. And the Jewish people eventually call this junior Passover or mini Passover. Um, and it actually gets practiced. It's like a shortened version of Passover that still has the meaning to it, but it's not the full celebration. On the 14th, uh, verse 11, on the 14th day of the second month at twilight, they may keep it. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. So they keep the symbolic parts of the festival. And they, verse 12, they shall leave none of it until morning nor break one of its bones because the sacrifice of Passover should not have its bones broken. And that symbolically is important. Like Jesus's bones weren't broken. And that's a big point in the gospels because that's part of the prophetic message of Passover. According to all the ordinance of the Passover, they shall keep it. So all the messianic elements are still there. The significant parts, the memorial parts, they're all still there. And the heart part, these people still get to worship in Passover and give that gift to God. It's part of the keeping the memory and it's what God gives. Verse 13, but the man who is clean and is not on a journey and ceases to keep the Passover, that same person shall be cut off from the people because he did not bring the offering of the Lord at its appointed time, this man shall bear his sin. So the exception makes it really clear, and verse 13 really gets this point home. If you can keep the Passover, you're obligated to do it, or you're cut off from the people, and that means to kill. And it doesn't necessarily mean you kill the person, but you kill their relationship with the people. They're not part of the fellowship anymore. Don't go away mad, just go away. You're not part of the fellowship. If you have every ability to keep Passover and then you don't do it, you shouldn't be part of the nation of Israel. It's just that simple. But if you want to and you're far away, so being far away on a journey, this it's we assume they're on like a trip, right? A family vacation. They've gone up to the North Shore. But they didn't do trips in agrarian societies. We had neighbors up in northern Minnesota. They literally had been on their farm and within 45 minutes for 60 years because they had milking cows. You don't leave your milking cows. You stay there forever. And that's these people were herds people. You didn't, you didn't go on a journey unless you had to go on a journey, right? So you're being forced into that situation. You don't touch dead bodies unless you have to touch dead bodies because that's not something we generally do as human beings, right? So if you're in a situation you, that's out of your control, you can still keep Passover. And God creates this exception here that's going to get abused for generations by Pharisees. And Jesus calls the Pharisees out because God's saying here, we don't have to keep the letter of the law, we keep the spirit of the law. And in that, we need judges that help to discern that for the nation. And we need Levites and priesthoods that help bring people into worship, not push people away from God. They draw people in. And sometimes they need to make exceptions to do that, right? So this idea becomes kind of this theme that kind of happens throughout the Bible. And we'll see exceptions to the letter of the law throughout the Old Testament. I'll just give you a couple of examples. 
1 Samuel 21, David goes into the tabernacle and asks for the showbread to help feed his men. What, you're going to eat the showbread? That's a complete defilement of the sanctuary. But it's not a defilement because David's the anointed king. He has a need and feeding people so they don't die is far more important than a symbolic table of bread in the tabernacle. And he eats the showbread. They give it to him. And the Bible does not say that that's some sort of problem and God doesn't have a problem with that. Right? Because there's, these are people that honestly want to serve the Lord, but they're in a situation where they can't. Nehemiah is another example. When they come back into the promised land and they set up the new temple and they celebrate Passover again for the first time, it's this amazing moment in the history of Israel. They're renewing their covenant with God. And the Passover, there's so many people that come to worship Passover. They have Nehemiah extends the timeline past a week. So it's not a seven-day thing. He expands the timeline so they can get everybody through the line. Those are long lines that people are standing in. But everybody who wants to worship God gets to worship God. And we'll break these little rules that we have about timelines. If people want to come into faith with God, we're going to make that happen, right? People want to eat food from the state fair. We're going to set up those food trucks and let people do that. That's grace or mercy. That's the flexibility of God that I think people that have critiques of the Bible, want to they want to paint the Old Testament God as a, a God of rules and regulation. And here we have an example of God saying, you know what, if they want to do the Passover, let them do the Passover. We're not going to push people away from my presence. We're going to bring people into my presence. That's the purpose of all this. And we see this God has, has got that flexibility too. So Moses comes back with more than what he asked for. And when we go to God in prayer and we abide in God, this happens all the time. Mature believers will tell you story after story. We went to God asking for this and he told us this, this, and this, and this. This is what we learn because God gives more than he takes. And we often go to God and if we honor God with that question, we often get back from those. 1 Samuel 2.30, but now the Lord says, Far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me I will lightly esteem. So when a friend comes knocking on God's door in the middle of the night, Jesus tells this story. This one's in Luke 11. Friend comes knocking on your door in the middle of the night, 2 a.m., and they want some bread from you. Initially, you ignore them and say, I'm sleeping. I don't want this. But the person's persistent. They keep knocking. And, and Jesus says, I say to you, though he will not rise to give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs, loaves of bread. So I say to you, ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. If you've got questions, you go to God and you ask. And if you don't get an answer right away, you're persistent and you keep asking. Stand still and wait, and I'm going to go into the presence of God and just be with God for a while. If you've got questions, you turn to God's word and you wait for an answer. The hardest thing as we mature in our faith is being okay with that and just being all right with that. And then here God in verse 14 adds to it too and kind of makes a larger principle. This is again just right before they're going to get up and move. These are amazing theological principles that get worked in here. If a stranger dwells among you and they would keep the Lord's Passover, he must do so according to the rite of Passover and according to its ceremony. You shall have one ordinance for the stranger and the native of the land. Any foreigner can become a Jew. Jew is not a racial designation. And we never see that in the Bible. It's a national designation where if you want to come into this covenant, you just need to follow our rules. 
right? That's their naturalization process. It's a major rule. One ordinance is the Hebrew word kuga. It's a statute or an establishment. This is how we run our country. If you want to be a Jewish person, you celebrate Passover. And you think, wow, that's really super easy. No, it's not. Remember, part of Passover for the guys is you need to be circumcised. So that's not a minor thing at all. It's a major thing. Um, but that's how it works. There's one God. There's one Passover. There's one lamb for all of this Passover lamb that's sacrificed for this family. Remember, one lamb covers the whole household. So there's going to be one lamb that covers the household of God. That lamb will serve both the Gentile and the stranger. This principle in verse 14 makes the New Testament possible. Because any stranger wants to be part of that. And most of us are those strangers, right? We're not Jewish by birth. Um, we, we're, not, we're not born into that people. Um, it's not a racial thing. But it's never changed. For 3,500 years, the Passover religion, the Passover institution has never really changed. And think of how amazing that is. Every major Christian holiday we have has been transformed by the secular world, but not Passover. Passover, there's no Passover cartoon character. There's no Passover thing that sits on a cereal box. There's no Passover decorations that go in the front yard, right? And especially the big blow-up ones with the air puffiness. All of our major religions get secularized eventually, but not Passover. It stays the same forever. And we have this institution that stays, and, and I think God's kept it that way. So, and, But who knows, maybe tomorrow they'll come up with a Passover cartoon character. It would just be horribly, it would just wouldn't fit. There's something like goes against my spirit when I even think of it. But why do we think Santa Claus is so cool? Or the Easter Bunny? Or little, you know, Shamrock, St. Paddy's Day leprechauns? You know, those things kind of just, we don't have any problem with those. But you think of doing something like that with Passover, and you, oh, it just doesn't feel right. It feels like horribly politically incorrect, but there's not a really... Anyways, just a thought. God accepts the worship of his people. And here's these people that want to worship, but there's a rule that says they can't, and God says, come on in anyways. Because that's not the point. The point is the, the remembrance that I want you to think of on this day. So Jesus, with this one lamb, one person, one household, one sacrifice, one God, one way, one truth, one life, it's all the same thing. Verse 14 establishes that principle. And when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, it's because he's the Passover land for God's household. You don't get to be in God's household if you don't come in through Jesus Christ covering and his blood covering you. So God accepts the worship of his people. So then chapter 9 goes to a transitional piece where we talk about a cloud. And this is where it just gets super amazing. So we have covered what it takes to get on the move for God. And this last piece, I think, is really neat. Before You can have everything lined up. You can be organized. You can have your new name. You can be sanctified. You can, be, you can commit yourself like a Nazarite. You can make all these decisions and oaths and vows. But at the end of the day, you still got some questions about what to do, how to do it, where to go. God says the last thing that you as a human need to do is abide with him and just worship him, right? And don't let stuff get in the way of that. Now, verse 15, we transition to a new section with the word now. On the day that the tabernacle was raised up, that's now we're going back in time to day one, remember? 
The cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony, from evening until morning. It was above the tabernacle like the appearance of fire. So it was, always. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. So we have this transition of that goes to the travel chapters starting in chapter 10 and ends these set up, get ready to travel chapters that are verse, chapters 1 through 9. Not only is God speaking to Moses in the tabernacle where he goes in in private, now he's speaking to the whole nation by showing his presence to them. This Shekinah glory. Shekinah is a Greek word for this cloud. And this, this cloud that sits out, and cloud's a sloppy word in the Hebrew. It's not a cloud in the sky, and that's I, we see that here in the description. It's the appearance of fire by night. So that doesn't mean the cloud changes. It means that it has a force to it that starts to show better when their other lights go out, this light remains. So it's similar to this idea that there's revealed truths to Moses as the leader in the nation, but then there's a revealed truth that God shows himself to everybody who's there. Anybody in Israel could see this Shekinah glory sitting over the tabernacle from day one, right? And he makes himself more visible when it's time to move because he'll go up or lift this cloud and he's less visible because he's right over the tabernacle when they're supposed to stay and stay put. So the tent of the testimony is the Holy of Holies, the Ark with the law of God. We know that because we've done the previous books. And this appearance is always visible and it's obvious to see. Whenever there's a doubt, they can turn to God and see God there. They know if they're supposed to be moving or not moving, they just turn towards the tabernacle and there's, there's either a stop or a go light. And the go light is that the cloud is high and the stop light is that the cloud is low. And we're going to see that in the coming chapters. Okay, but before we go to the coming chapters, this cloud is an interesting thing. In the Hebrew sense, we've seen this word before. God has shown himself in our Bible study as we've gone through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. And it's kind of interesting because every time God appears, he appears as a cloud or as a fire. Remember the burning bush for Moses? But he also appears as this cloud to Abraham. And it's not just any cloud, it's the cloud. It's the cloud of God. It's the cloud of heaven. And the, this word is then very particular and it shows up a few times, God's cloud. Um, it's the same cloud that we saw in Genesis 9:13 when God said to Noah, I'm going to make a covenant from you and I'm going to put my bow in the cloud. And he makes a rainbow. Um, and so it should be a cloud bow, actually, but that's another thing. Um, and he makes this covenant between gods and humans, so, or God and humans, not gods, plural. And this covenant is, is represented by a rainbow. It's the exact same cloud that we saw in Exodus 13, verse 21, when he led the people out of Egypt with that cloud that went in front of them. Same cloud, same word. Um, in that case, they, the cloud was protecting and guiding them. In the case with, with Noah, it was the covenant. He met with Abraham and came in the form of a cloud and made a covenant with Abraham. Um, so it's a guiding cloud. It's a protecting cloud. It, it's a sheltering cloud. It's the same cloud that blocked the vision of the Egyptians and went be, sat between the Egyptians and the Israelites. It's the same cloud that in Exodus 40 showed up when they first set up the tabernacle on day one of this month that we're in. It covers and it shelters them. And it's the same cloud that in Leviticus 16.2 was inside the holy tabernacle above the mercy seat of the ark. Same cloud. 
And I, we just need to know that this, this is a consistent thing that we keep seeing in the Bible. When God shows up, especially to lead or protect or to covenant with his people, he shows up in a very visible, forceful form. I was telling Steph, because I'm reflecting on our whole life, our journey so far. Every time there's been a major decision that we've had to make as a family, it has not been a question. It has not been a doubt. We've known because there's 20 different things that are lining up to move in this direction. And it's obvious. And when God doesn't want us to move and we want to move, then it's not so obvious. But when God wants his people to move, he shows himself. He reveals himself so that there's no doubt. I like the story when I was in college and I was sick of dating. I never wanted to date again in the rest of my life. And I thought, okay, if I'm done dating and I would, I'd like to get married, let me start pursuing the person who I think God wants me to marry. So this was the idiot immature Sean I made a list of all the women that I knew in my life that I could potentially be married to for the rest of my life. These are women that were following the Lord and they were nice people and um, you're in college, so I knew a lot of them. So I make this list, which is just ridiculous. And I'm sitting at the desk in my dorm room and I make this list. And then I realized when I made the list that the only name on the list that's relevant was the first one I put down. It was this young lady I knew from way back when I was in ninth grade in high school. And I knew who she was. She was one of my best friends. And none of the other names mattered. I don't even know how I finished the list. But I got done with the list. And it was like that name glowed, like in a cartoon. And it was like, why are you, why are you even questioning this? The answer is obvious. I've already shown you who I want you to spend your life with. The only problem was she hated my guts. So I had to resolve that and ask for forgiveness because I was an idiot. I had to ask her family for forgiveness because I was mean and I had to do all these things. But my thought is if I don't go down that path, then I'm gonna always regret not having done what I felt I knew God wanted me to do. So, and luckily forgiveness was there. You know, they were good Christian family. I don't know if her dad ever really forgave me, but uh, in the end, I think he did, but we'll never know. I'll know when I get to heaven. And that was Steph, by the way, just so, <laughs> just so everyone knows. Um, when God wants us to do things, he makes us well known. And this cloud shows up, right? And it's, it's in that form. And if it's not showing up, abide in God, right? The theme kind of goes with that weird, awkward story about Passover. And now it connects a little bit. So the same cloud shows up when God shows his love and when he shows his approval of Israel, as we go through the rest of the Old Testament, it's going to show up for those of you that want to go do a further Bible study this week. Deuteronomy 31, verse 15. 1 Kings 8, verse 10. 2 Chronicles 5, verse 13. God shows up to say, you've done it the right way. I approve. I'm on your side. And this cloud, can you imagine how amazing that would feel if you're at the tabernacle steps and they get done doing this ceremony and all of a sudden this cloud just appears and you just feel like, whoa. And he even shows that he's giving a, a king's favor when he appears in Proverbs 16, verse 15, that God appears to kings and shows them that in the same way he appears to Moses. So this testimony is the Hebrew word eduth. It means to bear witness or to tell God's story. When God wants you to tell his story, he'll show you how to do that. 
God's people are ever sheltered by this cloud. And as they go through the wilderness, God's uh, presence is more visible and known when they're in the wilderness than when they get to Israel, that presence isn't always there. And I think that's like the footprints poem. What we don't know is that when we're lost, God is usually more with us in those times than when when we're feeling like we're in the right place and doing the right thing. And it's those times when God can teach us This is not the marshmallow fluffy cloud that we see in the sky. This is God's cloud and it has power and physical presence that people can see. The word appearance in verse 16 is the writer Moses is trying to tell us this was a visible thing that they could see. That's the claim. And as this book gets written down, you have 2 million people that agree with this claim because we don't see a lot of ancient artifacts refuting Moses, right? This was a people that all saw it. They all agreed on it. There wasn't debate here about whether or not they could see God. So when they're lost, they can see God. When a nation starts to become lost, the people of God become more visible. It's been fascinating to see the people doing baptisms down in Minneapolis right now as we have disorder and chaos in our city. The people of God show up right in the middle of it and God's presence becomes felt more powerfully in those times than in not. So then you'd say, well, shouldn't we then sin so grace can abound? And Paul answers that and says, no, doofball, you don't just sin and create chaos so God's presence will be more known. But when there is chaos, God becomes visible. And God's people become known and they become seen because we thrive in those moments. Oh, this is super cool. So verse 17, they're going to just repeat this point three times so that we get it through our thick human skulls. Whenever the cloud was taken up from the, above the tabernacle after the children of Israel would journey and in its place where the cloud settled, there the children of Israel would pitch their tents. At the command of the Lord, the children of Israel would journey. At the command of the Lord, they would camp. As long as the cloud stayed above the tabernacle, they remained camped. Even when the cloud continued long, many days above the tabernacle, the children of Israel kept the charge of the Lord and they did not journey. So it was when the cloud was above the tabernacle for a few days, according to the command of the Lord, they would remain encamped. And according to the command of the Lord, they would journey. So it was when the cloud remained only from evening until morning, when the cloud was taken up in the morning, they would journey, whether by day or night, by night. Whenever the cloud was taken up, they would journey. Whether it was two days, a month, a year, that cloud remained above the tabernacle, the children of Israel would remain encamped and not journey. But when it was taken up, they would journey. You getting the point? And at the command of the Lord, they remained encamped. And at the command of the Lord, they journeyed. And they kept the charge of the Lord at the command of the Lord by the hand of Moses. When God says to move, we move. When God says not to move, we don't move. The journey through the wilderness is not ours to determine. The steps are not ours to pick. We do what God tells us to do when he tells us to do it. Oh, but that's so weak. You're just giving up all your human authority over your life. You're just handing that authority over to God. And yes, that's exactly what we're doing. And it's joyful because we don't have to decide when to pitch our tents and when to move and when to stay and when to do things. We just follow the Lord. God decides that. Verse 17, the pitching of tents. It's very important. That does not mean that they built cities. There's nothing permanent. The phrase pitching tents is a temporary, it's like going camping. It is not settling in a land. It's not building homes. They are, they are, there's nothing permanent about that phrase in verse 17. Pitching tents means exactly what it means in the English. They're not building homes. 
So even if it's a year or a month, you caught that, doesn't matter how long it is, they don't settle in because they're not going to settle anywhere but where God has them to settle, which is the promised land. So they're always ready to move. By the way, we know chronologically this is being written in retrospect because you notice they say a day, a month, a year. When they put the year in verse 22, that's not a 14-day walk to the promised land. That is being written because they spend 40 years doing this. So it's being written in retrospect, and we know that from that verse. When, or it's prophetic, one of the two. Whenever, whether they would journey, they would remain at the command, all of these phrases essentially mean responsiveness to God's will. The closer they are to God, the more responsive they are to God's will. Have you ever been in a room with strangers and something just tells you you should go talk to that person over there? And then you find you've met a brother or sister in the faith or you've just run into somebody who's struggling and you're just being responsive to the Lord or you're out strawberry picking and you just say, I know I should be talking to that person in the next row. And then you strike up a conversation and you, you're doing exactly what God wanted you to do in that person's life. Or you ask questions that normally you wouldn't ask because you feel like God's just prompting you to say this thing in this conversation. Um, that's being responsive to the Lord. Whenever, whether, if you journey, if you stay at the command of the Lord, you do these things. A, a few points on this. This idea of moving when God says to move and staying when he says to stay. It's really good, but it's important to know before I get into the rest of these points. This is not the ideal. Because this is what happens when they're lost in the wilderness, right? God will become, or this idea of the cloud, this visible cloud of God will be a crutch to the Israelites because when it's that obvious, they don't have to make it a heart spiritual thing. And some people say, wouldn't it be nice in the church age if we just had little clouds over people's heads so we knew who God wanted us to talk to? He didn't work through our hearts. He, we would just see a visible appearance of fire and say, oh, I can tell that, you know, Mandy's struggling today because she has a fire over her head. Wouldn't that be nice? But the problem is then that's a crutch too, is that we're not responding to God directly with our heart and our soul. We're responding through our eyeballs and what we see. And that becomes a crutch for the Israelites too. This mode of operation where God's more present, more visible, more obvious is an indication of a nation that will be lost in the wilderness for a long time. And I think that's an important contextual thing to know here. It's not the ideal situation to have God be obvious in your life. He steps in when you're a stupid college kid that doesn't know who to pursue for a wife, right? That's when he steps in is because he needs to because you're not recognizing what he's already told you to do, right? I'm sorry about all that stuff again. I'm... It has the phrase, so it was, three times. And I love these structural things. And I know for some of you, you like this stuff too. So I'm with you on that. And for some of you, you're like, Dickers, you just get way too into the framing of these things. This is a beautiful written piece of poetry. The structure of this is amazing. It's brilliant. And in its literary sense, I want to point out some things. And the, what should key you off is in verse 16, verse 20, and verse 21, use three, three uses, three repetitions of the, word, of the phrase, so it was. So it was, so it was, so it was. We know because this is the book of Numbers that those things should, we should pay attention to those things. Those three repetitions, three times, is that number of completeness, perfection, it's full, it's perfect. And we have a chiastic form with verse 20 right smack dab in the middle. 
and this chiastic form is going to encapsulate the life of the Egyptians for 38 years, which is why they repeat themselves. So if you want to kind of structure this or draw lines in your Bible, verse 17 and 18 kind of go as the beginning phrase. And then verses, and then verse 23, kind of a longer verse, is the pairing to verses 17 and 18. I got to put it like this. Then if you go in on the chiastic form, verse 22 and verse 19 match up. And then verses 20 and 21, a double so it was, so it was, are sitting right in the middle of the form. Um, and I'll give you just a couple of examples of this. In verse 19, it says they're going to go as long as God says it's, they're going to go. And in the verse 22, it says they're going to stay as long as God's going to stay. Um, so verses 17 and 18 say they were going to be responsive to the command of the Lord. And it just kind of repeats it. And then in verse 20 and 21, it says they're responsive to the Lord, saying virtually the same thing. And then in verse 23, they say we're going to be responsive to the Lord. And then 19 and 22 show how they're going to be responsive to the Lord. 19 saying they're going to stay when they're, they're going to continue when they're supposed to continue. And verse 22 saying they're going to stay as long as they're supposed to stay. Make sense? So you see this kind of structure and how this is put together. And it's interesting in repetition, but it's also how they would use boldface. It's how they would make something stick out from those scrolls where they didn't have punctuation and they didn't have that kind of form. It's interesting that God's going to point into how he's leading them three different times. The phrase taken up is another one I got carried away with. Why the word taken up? The cloud is taken up. And it's not a complex word. In the Hebrew, it actually means to vertically lift something. So I'm trying to picture like with Egypt, when they're getting out of Egypt, the cloud was either in front of them or behind them, remember? But in this case, it's not. It's just lifted up. It's up and over things. So God ascends and it's kind of a, a go and stop kind of symbol, but he stays in the middle of the camp because it stays over the ark. So this is kind of interesting. God always sits in the middle of Israel from here forward. He doesn't go in front of them or behind them. So he lets the tribe of Judah lead. And is it the tribe of Dan that's in the back? Gad is in the back. One of them's in the back. Um, and he has, but he stays in the middle of their nation. So the, ver the phrase taken up is a physical motion. It's not a figurative thing, right? It's a, it's a physical thing, but it doesn't mean the cloud disappears. The cloud just elevates and becomes more visible when it's time to go. So you'd wake up in the morning, you'd stretch as you got out of your tent, and you'd see that the cloud has lifted. Oh, you go back into your tent, wake up your family, kick your son, get out of bed, it's time to wake up. And, you would, and you would, you'd say, it's, we're going to pack up and we're going to get moving. And we already know from previous chapters how they would organize that. And now they all know that it'll happen. And in the next chapter, there's even going to be trumpets that blow, which is amazing when you look at the book of Revelation. When it's time to go, there will be trumpets. Nobody knows, nobody doubts when it's time to go. Um, so God is taken up. He becomes more visible when it's time to move. We've already talked about that. And also notice that the phrase taken up in verse 17, when it's repeated in verse 18, you see how it translates interchangeably with the phrase, the command of the Lord. The taking up, the elevation of God is his command. And it gets used interchangeably, those two phrases, throughout this passage. There's a distinctive here, restating that God is leading in verse 18. Then it says it again in verse 20 and 21. And the shift of this is that it's the same God that leads them each time. So 
you look at this and it looks like they're just repeating the same sentence almost three times. But the ways in which those sentences change in each of those phrases shows almost a trinity of God's nature. So the command of the Lord stays the same in three different formats with the same God leading them. And so you see this kind of another kind of beautiful reference to a, a triune God that shows up here. Um, and, and, then, and then again, it's broken up with 19 and, and 22 being these, we stay when God tells us to stay, we move when God tells us to move. The whole thing is shaped to where seeing it on a page would have been part of how you understood this verse. And I hope I've done it justice to where you kind of picture this kind of three parts and then a little sandwich in between, you know, kind of a five-part piece. And it all says the same thing. It's all the same message. When God ascends, we follow him. In the New Testament, when God ascends, we follow him. And I started to, to look forward in the Bible, and it's interesting. The first chapter of the book of Acts is one of the only places in the New Testament where they use this phrase, taken up, in the Greek, the actual physical lifting. Listen to the four passages in the book of Acts. So this is how Luke, by the way, a, a researcher of his age, a doctor of his age, this is how he documents the, the Jesus Christ ascension. And he uses a phrase purposefully that's extremely rare in both the Greek, and it's really not used a lot in the Hebrew. Every other time it's used in the Old Testament, it's pulling Daniel out of the well. I mean, it's this physical lifting piece, uh, except for in reference to God, it's talking about this elevation of God. In the New Testament, it's the same thing. The passage is used very particularly with the ascension of Jesus Christ. When God is ascended, we follow God. And Luke uses this image, this taking up, which is unique to this chapter of Numbers, and it's unique to the first chapter of the book of Acts. Perfect pairing. And you think no human plans this out. Like, this is God's hand on his book, and it's really neat. In Acts 1-2, the day in which he was taken up, that's an odd phrase when somebody dies, right? We don't say they're taken up, we say they're buried. But Jesus was taken up, hauled or lifted by something or someone. Acts uh, chapter 1, verse 9, while they watched, he was visible, he was taken up and, and I love this one, a cloud received him. Well, that's interesting. What cloud is that? And what, is it a cloud or the cloud that receives him? Acts chapter 1, verse 11, this same Jesus, and then again he adds it, which is taken up from you into heaven, is being the present tense. He is taken up. And again, Luke's no dummy. This is a smart guy. He doesn't say he was taken up. He says he is taken up. So in verse 2 and verse 9, he was taken up. But in verse 11, he is taken up from you into heaven, so shall come. Acts verse chapter 1, verse 22, beginning from the baptism of John to the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Witness being to tell a story. See the same thing back here in the book of Numbers. We see a cloud. We're a witness to that cloud. We're supposed to tell people about that cloud. That God is there. He is taken up. And when the cloud goes up, we follow. When Jesus is taken up, we follow there too. Okay, I know I'm getting far into this, but it gets cooler. How do we know that the cloud that they're using there is the same cloud we're talking about? Luckily, God translates these words, and some words we actually get passages that show us the translation from the Hebrew to the Greek. 
So is it a cloud, a cloud in the sky, or is it the cloud? Is it a particular word? So 1 Corinthians 10, chapter, chapter 10, verse 1, gives us that translation so that we have it right there in the New Testament. They reference the cloud from the Old Testament using a particular Greek word, Shekinah. Moreover, brethren, I would, I would not that you should be ignorant. I don't want you to be ignorant. How that our fathers were under the cloud and all that passed through the sea. Paul uses this phrase in Corinthians and shows us what the Greek word is for that cloud, the cloud that God was there. It's not any cloud. It's the cloud of heaven, God's physical, visible appearance. And that same cloud shows up all over in the New Testament. And I've mentioned a few at Jesus' baptism. All three synoptic gospels use that word for his baptism. Matthew 17, verse 5. Mark 9, 7. And Luke 9, 35. All mention that exact same word that Paul uses in Corinthians. The cloud showed up at his baptism. It's the same cloud that Jesus is going to return in in Luke 21, verse 27. And we see it in Revelation 14, 14. God, Jesus will come riding on the clouds. Not the clouds, plural. Jesus will come riding on a cloud of heaven, the Shekinah cloud. He'll come in this cloud that was over the tabernacle. The same cloud that they saw over the tabernacle leading them through the wilderness is the same cloud that we're going to see when Jesus returns. This is kind of neat because God doesn't change. Right? He doesn't need new clouds. He has a cloud, the cloud. The same cloud that holds us is the one that we're going to see in heaven. Hebrews 12.1, the cloud of witnesses, same word, Shekinah. So mature believers, believers in the faith that have gone to heaven, they reside in the cloud with God. That's the whole purpose from the Garden of Eden, is that we abide with God, we live with God, we're in the cloud with God. Revelations 11.12, that's where we're headed. We're headed to the cloud. So it's kind of sad that these people in the wilderness, these Israelites, couldn't actually go into the cloud with God. But they were terrified of the cloud when it sat on top of Mount Sinai. They even asked Moses to be the one to go up into it. Moses is the only human on earth that goes into that cloud and lives. So there's a, something broken in our relationship to where we can't be in that cloud with God. But we want to be. That's the goal. And that holiness, all these things we've seen in the book of Leviticus, Numbers, are all so that we can abide with God and we can reside with God. So it creates this wonderfully practical image of the goal of where we're headed and where we want to be. And that's the point. I want to go back through this checklist that we have of being a child of God in the wilderness with the end goal of being with God and knowing that we're in his will. Speaking of clouds. That's how Moses felt when he said something and then something goes, ooh, and he's like, okay, God, I guess you're with me. In Numbers 1, God counts and names his people. So let me give you a checklist. If we translate to us, here's some questions for you. Do you know the truth that God has given you? Do you know who you are in Christ and have you taken stock of that? Have you counted what you're able to do and what you're not able to do? What gifts do you have that you can actually bring to the church and the people of God? Do you know how to cook? Do you know how to love people? Do you know how to make conversation? Do you know how to make people feel at ease? Do you know how to study things and teach it like a true geek? You know, are there things, and, and Paul puts this in much more eloquent language, right? But what do you know how to do that you can actually bring? And don't be false about it, right? Have you ever watched the American Idol tryouts where people come in and they can't sing for anything? But they think they can because they're deluded. 
And that's not what God wants of his people. He doesn't want people coming into the church deluded about what they can do and what they can't do. Be realistic about what you know how to do and, not, and, and do those things God's gifted you with and do them with joy. Have you counted what you can do? And have, have you been, do you know your name in God? Do you know what he's made you to do, right? Numbers chapter two, God organizes everybody. Is your life in order? I've, I remember talking to one young man who was trying to find God's will in his life. And I said, well, what time do you generally get up in the morning? Well, I get up at all different times. Do you use an alarm clock? No, I just wake up when I wake up. Well, how do you do your, do you spend any time with the Lord in the morning? That's what I'm really trying to ask you. Oh, sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't. Okay. How do you, where do you work that you are able to, well, I kind of do odd jobs all over the place. Okay. Well, all right. So before we get to anything else in your spiritual life, let's try to organize your life because you, God can't rule you through chaos. He doesn't want to like get your life in order. Organize it. And that's harder for young people than it is for old people. Because old people, we like our rhythms and our habits because they take care of certain things that we don't have to think about then, right? We can spend more mental time on God if we're not spending mental time on when to wake up in the morning. What a ridiculous thing to exhaust life on, right? Stress then becomes a lack of order in our life or stress comes from trying to please people, right? Is your life organized? Is who you're trying to please organized? Are you trying to please God or are you trying to please man? Because you can't serve both God and man. So at some point you got to disappoint humans to please God. And is that okay with you? And are you good with that? Go to Numbers chapter 3 and 4. God puts his servants to work. And I know I've spent more time on this. I'll be real short about it. But here's the question for that. Have you found a way to be content in what God's given you to do today? Are you content with it? Are you content with retirement? No, that's, a, that's an older question. Are you content with menial labor, like the Merari and the Kohathites? Can you carry and lift crap for the Lord? Is that what you, are you good at that? No, nobody's good at it, it's just lifting. But that's what God's put in front of you. Can, li can you lift with joy? Because if you can do the small things, then God will give you greater things, right? Um, have, you have you found a way to see past the day-to-day -day grind for the purpose of God in your life because he wants you in that grind so that you can learn how to do other things for God, right? Numbers five, he cleans up. Remember, he deals with sin and he gets it there. This is another one of those things when you counsel people and I, and, and I, and I think as a teacher, I've counseled a lot of young people where they're trying to serve the Lord and do more things for God, but they've got massive things of sin in their life and they don't even see it as sin because they're so accustomed to it. The whole frog in the water thing, if you turn the water, heat up gently, the frog will just sit there and get boiled. I've yet to test this, but the scientist in me wants to try it. But it rings true, right? Because it's like that with sin in our life too. Sometimes we've let sin become such a part of our way of life that we are, we're nowhere near serving God and we'll always be lost in the wilderness because God isn't going to work through sin. And he's made that very clear, right? So you're either fighting to get sin out of your life or you're accepting it. And God wants the fight, right? And, and then you'll meet Christians that are like, they just beat themselves up with guilt because they're like, I keep failing. I keep backsliding. I keep going back into it. And it's like, then keep fighting. That's what you're supposed to be doing. If you're backsliding, then try to go a longer stretch without backsliding. Ask the Lord to help you not to backslide because if you're trying to do it on your own strength, you'll lose. Sin is greater than you. But God, the one that's in you is greater than that sin. So have you turned to God and said, God, help me conquer sin? Help me get over this thing in my life that continues to take me away from your service. Clean up your life. Numbers chapter five. Numbers chapter six. God accepts vows and then he blesses his people. 
So I think for a, a question for mature believers, and I do think these kind of go in order, um, are you consecrating and vowing things in your life over to God? And ultimately the goal is to vow everything in your life over to God. And don't make these vows sloppily. Remember that when we covered the Nazarites? You don't do this lightly because you make a vow, your, your soul is bound to it. But have you taken parts of your life and given them over to God? Now, I'm preaching to the choir right now because you're all at a Bible study on a Sunday night studying numbers. Yes, you, you have taken a piece of your life and said, this is sacred and I'm going to be here for doing this. And I'm even going to put up with Dickers and his Bible study quirkiness because I love the Lord and I want to study the word and this gets me through the book of Numbers, which is hard to do on our own, right? But Nazarites do more than what they have to do. And there's that idea in Numbers chapter 6 that God accepts those things. Are you doing devotions in the morning? Are you reading through the Bible in a year on your own? There's, like, there's a list of things you can start setting aside for God and God will amazingly make more time in your life when you do these things. Are you tithing? Right? Are you giving that first fruits of your, your financial life over to God and giving it to the ministry somehow, shape, or form? I even like the idea of tithing your time. If you've got eight hours of work in a day, are you taking 80 minutes after work to do something for the kingdom every day? So, and that's not a biblical concept. It's just, you know, one of those like things that fill up the Bible bookstores of like ways to serve the Lord. But I like that idea. Are you taking parts of your life and setting it aside for God? For every hour of entertainment do you, you watch, are you fellowshipping with believers for an equal amount of time? And then you start thinking, why do I even do that entertainment, which leads to nothing but emptiness when fellowshipping with my friends is way more fun. So I was super happy. We were super excited. The campfire that we're doing coming up, like pretty much everybody's going to the campfire. Sorry, except for one person. Um, but because fellowshipping is important. And setting aside time to go hang out with other believers, even if it's not Bible study, just a campfire and fellowship, that's super important in our life. And we're due for another escape room adventure, by the way. Are we setting aside time in our life to be with believers, to fellowship, to live life with people and just go through life with people? It's a beautiful thing. Number seven, God records everything. And again, I, I jumped ahead. That's, are we giving things in service to the Lord, not only our time, but our, 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 our resources? God's recording those gifts in number seven. Numbers eight, God claims his workforce. Has God called you and have you followed? And God can call you like Aaron and his sons to this position of visibility in the nation, or he can call you like the Merari people where you just haul the lumber behind everybody. Actually, the Merari people got to go in front because they wanted the tabernacle, but that's next chapter. We'll get there next week. And then here in chapter nine, God accommodates your questions. Do you still have, after all that, do you still have questions you got to put before the Lord? And have you abided with God for a season to get those answers? Nothing worse than somebody that calls himself a Christian and they can't answer questions about their own faith. In the New Testament, we see a very clear edict on that. You should always be ready to defend your faith. You should always know what you think. And if there's doubts and questions in that, that's a healthy thing that you're supposed to go to leaders in the church and ask those questions. Those two people didn't just sit there and in the beginning of this chapter and mull in their questions. They went straight to Moses and said, what do we do here? We want to worship the Lord, but we're stuck on this legalistic thing. And Moses says, stand there and wait for the lightning bolt. And I'm going to back up a few steps and go hang out with God. So have we got those questions and are we just sitting on our own mulling on those things? Or do you go to mature believers and ask those questions and until you get an answer that works for you, 
And I think that's the importance of discussion around the word of God and the importance of being a critical thinker and going, ah, this has to make sense to me or you're a hypocrite. And that's a hard thing to hear, but it's just, if you haven't resolved those things and then you're tell, telling people to follow you, you're false. Why would I want to follow somebody who's lost in the wilderness for 40 years? I don't want to follow this. I want to follow Joshua. Joshua didn't have those questions, right? He, and we're going to see that in the coming chapters too. Nothing gets in the way of your worship ever. And that's a huge part of life in America it's all secular, everything, all the time. But there are some people that say, you know, for me and mine, we're going to serve the Lord. We're not going to serve everything that we get pushed at us from this world. We will set our life in order, pointing towards God. And we're going to wake up every morning and look for that cloud. Is it up or is it down? Do we follow? Do we move? Do we stay? Right? And that's not always physical motion. It's spiritual motion too. Is God leading where you're at? And are you following that cloud? Now, you're thinking, you have this question, should I do this or shouldn't I do this? And that's, again, I said a healthy question, but the answer to it is already there. And you may not like the answer. If you're either being told yes, and it's already in the Bible as to what you should do. If, for instance, you're living in sin with somebody, the answer is pretty clear that you shouldn't be doing that. Stop doing that stuff. Get rid of those defilements in your life, right? If it's a theological question, it's already in the Word of God. It's complete. It has your answer. So read the Word, understand it, know what it says. If it's a practical question, you may be asked to stand still and wait and just hang out with God for a little bit. And that's actually kind of a blessing. You know, take some time with the Lord. So in summary, this consummates this whole period of preparation that gets the nation of Israel ready to move for the kingdom. And they're moving towards the promised land. It is the perfect understanding of how to understand and be responsive to God. It is the answer the Bible gives. And I think as humans, sometimes we want more. We want to just be told what to do with a lightning bolt. I even had one person who I was discipling through a letter thing. This shows my age. We were writing letters back and forth, right? So this was a while ago. And he just said, well, you know, I said the prayer of salvation and nothing happened. And I kind of wrote him back and I, I took a line from Braveheart that said, well, what did you expect for fireballs to start coming out of orifices? I mean, what did you expect to happen? What does God need to do in your life to show you that he loves you? And what, how, what do we need to understand that? And that's one of those things where the answer God gives is if you abide in me, I'll abide in you. And that's the answer. So the answer is there. There won't be fireworks and lightning bolts when some of these happen. It's just going to be this present spiritual Holy Spirit that comes in your life and abides with you and lives with you. It's amazing how that happens. It's amazing to me that when they did the loaves and fishes, we were thinking about this this week too, nobody stopped while they were handing out the food to say, oh, there's a miracle happening. It was after it was all done and they just fed thousands of people with some loaves and fishes that a boy gave them that they realized that there's more at the end than what they had at the start and they just fed thousands of people. There were no lightning bolts, no sparkles, nothing like what we see in the movies. There were no Marvel superhero effects when God's hand was at work. But think of how amazing that work was and what God did in that moment was so powerful and profound, but the people doing it didn't even realize it until after it was over. That's how God works in your life. He is not a controller. You are not a puppet. You are a free will agent and you are going to look back in remembrance at things like Passover and realize the hand of God in your life. But while it's happening, sometimes it's painful. 
Sometimes it's confusing. Sometimes you feel lost in the wilderness, but I hope you can still see the cloud. God's still there. He's still present. His word abides. It is true. And all around you are believers that have been following the Lord their whole life. And all they do is testify how wonderful that is. And they share with you how that God's blessed their life. And that's a tough thing to believe until you're looking back at it. So God asks you to do these things so that you can look back at your life and see that God's hand has been in it all along. Next chapter, we're going to blow some trumpets and we're going to get moving. And that's been something we've been waiting for for a year or so for these Israelites to get away from Sinai and start moving forward in the larger narrative of the book. Amen? Dear Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for your gifts. Lord, we take a moment tonight to just pause on this idea that we abide with you. Uh, and Lord, I just pray that the commentary I gave tonight lands on each heart in this room as you intended your word to speak to us. Uh, Lord, help me to not add anything to your word or take anything away. Uh, that what you're trying to say and, and what's in the book of Numbers is what's landing in our hearts right now. And Lord, the only way that happens is through your Holy Spirit. So Lord, I just ask you to work in our lives. May you abide in our hearts. May your presence in our life be calming, be peaceful. Lord, may your presence in our life be one that erases guilt because you've thrown our sins as far as the east is from the west. Lord, we're not perfect people. We continue to fail. We'll be lost in the wilderness our whole life, but we want to end up in the promised land. So Lord, we're going to follow you as best we can with each moment and day that we have. Lord, I pray that as we look at our lives and we take stock of what we have, that we do it with eyes of truth, that we see things through your eyes and not our own. As we put order into our life, Lord, give us will to do that and strength to do it because we can't do it on our own. Uh, we're sinners by nature, Lord, and we need your help to bring order and peace to our lives. Lord, help us to be content in our work to know when it's time to go to a new job, Lord, because you've opened doors for a new path. Uh, Lord, help us to know when it's time to stay and when it's time to go, literally and spiritually. Lord, help us to know and fellowship with those we love. Help us to turn to other mature believers when we have questions. Uh, Lord, help us to sanctify and help us to consecrate parts of our life that will serve you and honor you, Lord, because we love you. Um, and that's what this is all about. Lord, help, help us to never be so legalistic that we forget the point of worship and the heart of worship, Lord. Um, help us to constantly come back to that, to understand it, so that we love you more than we love our own rules and our own legalism. Lord, help us to remember um, not just your salvation of Israel uh, and the Passover, Lord, but help us to remember what your hand has done, to remember Christ on the cross, to remember the expansion of the church, to, to Lord, to, to remember those Christians that stood in the Middle Ages in the face of pestilence and plague and they served and built hospitals and they helped people and they were holy. Lord, help us to remember those Christians that uh, brought the word of your love to, to new people and new tribes and new nations all over this earth and they did it with love and care and heart. Help us, Lord, to remember the people in our country that founded this country that built this country and put a steeple up in every small town across this continent. Lord, help us to remember those people that followed you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, 
post it on your social media. 